This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. Nelson Cardenas and Maricela Rodriguez are from very different backgrounds. Nelson came to the United States from Colombia as a kid and now works as a chef at Orlando Health. Rodriguez also came to the United States when she was a child from Cuba and she ran a company before turning to painting full-time. What they have in common is art and through their art they channel pride in their Hispanic heritage. Both Cardenas and Rodriguez are among a group of artists whose work is being showcased by the city of Oakland as part of Hispanic Heritage Month. Nelson, thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having us. And Maricela, thank you so much as well. Thank you so much. Nelson, I'm going to begin with you. You've already had a little bit of, uh, shall we say, publicity for some of your works this year. Um, this was a very different focus, though, right? Talking about your, your works there, in that case, were focused on the pandemic. Just tell us a little bit about what you were depicting and, and how that whole project came about. I created uh, 13 pieces paying tribute to healthcare workers. That was at the beginning of the pandemic. They were requested by a company that creates blowtorches because I paint with fire. So uh, that's part of my technique. And uh, at the time, New York was getting hit uh, dramatically by, by COVID. So they wanted to pay some kind of a tribute to healthcare workers. And that's how the whole series was born. At the end of, of the whole thing, they asked me, what do you want to do with these pieces? So I said, I would love to donate them to the hospital where I work at Dr. Phillips Hospital, because I am a healthcare worker myself. And uh, these some of the people that de- depicted on opinions are my coworkers. Uh, they were placed outside of the emergency department for a whole year where they, uh, they would stew the rain and, and the sun and the elements. And it, it kind of created a parallel to COVID that, you know, COVID was kind to beat, beat us up at the same time as the paintings were being destroyed. And that's how the whole thing uh, started. Uh, I was, as you said, I was, I received quite a bit of uh, publicity, including um, the U.S. News and World Report and uh, Dole Food Company actually saw my story and they asked me to create a second series. And this was a post-COVID series, which uh, pretty much depicted a whole different life on my work. It had color and it had sparkle. And uh, at the end, we ended up with 13 pieces that were displayed at the Orange County History Museum. Uh, The exhibit lasted a couple of months. They're back to the hospital and I donated six pieces to the museum. And uh, that's where we are now. Well, okay, so people have been able to see your art, whether it's at the History Museum or, or in an outdoor setting, it sounds. Maritella, tell me a little bit about the, the paintings that you make. Okay, so I basically use acrylic, and I, I'm i inspired by social events and um, really anything that's happening around me. Uh, during COVID, I had never done any, how do you say this, uh, nature. I didn't use nature in my art, and COVID actually drove me to make a whole series of uh, trees and nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm actually inspired by everyday things that are happening to me. But what really inspires me every day of my life is part of my Hispanic heritage. It's rooted in me. I'm a proud Cuban, and I'm very thankful that um, my family left Cuba to come to the United States. But you could see in my paintings that I use a lot of vibrant colors and that's part of what I'm known for, uh, contrasting colors. Um, and they all tell a story. Every, behind every painting, there is a story. 
And I love for the viewers to actually approach me and ask me what is behind, you know, the painting. And I feel that if I'm captured a viewer just staring at my painting, I've done a good work. And I'm looking at some of the imagery of the works that you have on display as part of this exhibition, Maricela. They're they're brightly colored. They're kind of, I would almost describe them as sort of jewel-like in the way that you use the colors, inviting the viewer in. And there's a real strong sense, I can see, these elements of, of your culture are very important, and that really comes through in the art. Thank you so much. And, and that's what I'm trying to portray. And, and again, behind every painting, there is a story. And I left Cuba when I was six years old, six or seven years old. I can't right now. I don't even remember if it was six or seven. But a lot of it is, has to do with my imagination. And I don't use a photo reference it's based on maybe stories my my mother told me and certain elements of Cuba that I do remember uh, till today. Nelson, back to you for a moment. Um, you've got a, a three paintings, I think, as part of or three works of art as part of this uh, exhibition in Oakland as well. Talk to me about what you've got on display and, and sort of how these represent the, the work that you do. First of all, I, I want to uh, say uh, uh, congratulations to Maricela. I love her work. I think it's Thank amazing the colors. Um, mm. I actually have four paintings. There's one corner of uh, Cantinflas. He's considered Latin America's uh, Charles Chaplin. He was an incredible Mexican comedian and is, is a huge impact on our culture. Uh, I have another painting of Frida. Of course, uh, you know, Frida is very important to our culture as well. One of the most influential uh, artists. I also have one painting that depicts it's, it's a little story about racism and how babies are not born with that in themselves this is something that you learn I, I call it bad habits as an adult the painting is actually composed of four planks of cedar wood and uh, they have a gap where that is joined by raw leather and the painting is called bound by skin because there's uh, two children a brown child and a white child, and they are napping. They're just embracing themselves. And uh, they look beautiful. Children don't don't think about color, like like I said, skin color, because it's not, they're not born with that. So it's called bound by skin, but not by color. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's another painting called La Abuela, which is a very important part of any Hispanic household is the matriarch. <laughs> this person that holds everything together and everything, everybody looks up to her and, and follows her example. So those are the four pieces that I have. And that is absolutely true. Uh, the grandmothers are prime in the house. They, they rule. <laughs> we put everything together. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I, I can't stop laughing because it is so true, everything Nelson was saying. Um, but I wanted to also say that I um, I'm also have other exhibits for Hispanic heritage. I'm in the uh, Orlando International Airport. Going to be featured at uh, Despierta Orlando uh, TV station at the Orange County Government Building. And of course, I'm in the Oakland uh, Orange Arts and Heritage Center. And I think Nelson is in one of those as well. So I hope uh, the viewers are able to go and appreciate that. I wanted to ask too, because the paintings that you make, um, Maricela, they're 
they're bright, they're kind of cheerful, they're, they look hopeful, and yet the history of Cuba, especially lately, is very turbulent. Is, is that like a difficult thing for you when you sort of think about how am I going to represent some elements of this? Right. And so my paintings, I wanted to uh, be part of what Cuba was, the thriving Cuba, the colorful Cuba, not the Cuba that is today. And it's also the Cuba that I would like to see in the future. I want my the viewer to be happy when they see it. I want them to especially my Cuban people, I want them to know that that could be, that could be Cuba again. And I think that's what um, I'm portraying with my art. Mm -hmm. Nelson, how important is Hispanic Heritage Month to you? And how much are you thinking about, I guess, your heritage as, as you're creating works of art? Well, it's extremely important. I, uh, I was born in Medellin, Colombia. I came to this country in 1986. It was uh, the height of the violence with the narco uh, traffickers trying to take over the country. Uh, my mom uh, and I came to the United States. Otherwise, poverty, extreme poverty and the situation over there, I know that I probably would not have survived. When I went back to Colombia the first time, I think I found about 30% of my friends that I, that I grew up with when I was 13 years old were not there anymore because they all had somehow been uh, recruited by the narco traffickers and gotten killed uh, in some way. So coming to the United States is a, was an incredible opportunity to me to be able to have an, uh, an education, to thrive in, in the things that I know how to do in my art. So our culture is engraved in us and you can see it in, in a lot of the things that I do. When I was little, we didn't have much. And uh, every toy that we had, we made ourselves. And I, I consider that I took that with me in my, in my work because I work with found objects. I work with things that people bring to me. People just all of a sudden say, can you come and pick this up? I know you can use it for your art. And it reminds me, it brings me back when I was a child creating my own toys. I'm now creating my own art from zero because I, I pretty much put my entire canvases together. And it's a combination of different materials. I work with metal, with wood, canvas, leather, glass, uh, mirrors. So I, I think that I, I got into this point because of the things that I had to uh, survive when I was little. I know that both of you, um, art is, it's it's a, a passion and it's also, you know, you, you do other things in your life too. Mary Seller, you founded a business, right? So this is like a second career for you in some ways. Yes, it is. You know, I ran a company, and um, but it wasn't fulfilling anymore. It came to a point that um, I needed something else, and I actually just one day decided to leave it <laughs> and walk out and follow my dream. And um, that's been around 10 years already. Uh, and, um, and I started painting, which is what I wanted to do. I actually received my first color pencil uh, when I arrived from Cuba from my dad. My dad had already been, uh, had left uh, Cuba and was already here waiting for us. And um, I think that's what started it all really because I remember it was like 50 color pencils and I used to love coloring with them. And um, I always was interested in painting, but um, it was my career, my kids, um, my husband, 
everybody else. And then uh, all of a sudden I said, it's time for me. And, um, and that's what I've been doing. I'm actually doing what I love, which is my art painting. I'm thinking too about a couple of the works you have, Nelson, and also the, the work that you have on display of Mary Seller. And in the case of your paintings, Nelson, you know, one of them is celebrating Frida Kahlo, of course. Do you sort of feel like you're part of that tradition now, carrying forward the tradition of art that uh, she is also part of? Um, I'm actually creating a whole new piece of Frida, and it's probably uh, three times the project that I have at the Oakland uh, show. It's actually, uh, I, I sometimes a little bit of a masochistic uh, artist because my piece is really difficult even to hang. But that's just how my mind works. I have a, I have a piece that I identify with, with Frida quite a bit as I was painting her image. Some of my brush strokes, as I look carefully, were quite similar. Um, I do, unlike Maricela, I do use images to be able to follow me. Uh, I, I'm trying to transition to work more for my imagination, and this new project is actually uh, depicting a lot of that. I actually using fluorescent paint. There's Frida in the front and you can actually open it up. It has door hinges on the side and uh, there's a corset on her body that separates her entire image. And then in the back is Frida with a menagerie of animals in fluorescent paint that you can only see with a blue light. Um, It's actually a pretty cool piece that I'm hoping I get to show at some point soon. But um, there are people doing amazing things right now and and people doing a lot of new stuff but i i come kind of a, a an old soul i try to stay with within uh some of the traditional stuff but my experimentation is with materials i'm not uh, so much into uh creating a whole new thing but more my materials depict what i do maricela what do you want people to take away from your work when they view it what I want them to take away from my work is that there is hope, there is beauty, there is an art that represents all of us. And I wanted to talk about Frida Kahlo too a bit. I'm actually working, I'm working my actually on two at the same time for an exhibit that's coming up in January. It's called Unusual Frida. And um, actually one of them is on oil. This is my first painting in oil. And it's pretty big. I believe it's 42 by 42, something like that. I'm actually looking at it while I'm talking to you. And actually Frida Kahlo, even though I did not believe in some of her views, uh, she's actually an inspiration because when I'm complaining that my knee hurts or anything hurts, I'm thinking this lady painted in her bed. She, um, there was nothing stopping her. I mean, she could move and there she was painting from her bed. So I just wanted to mention that, that she is some kind of inspiration for me. Well, I wanted to uh, thank you both for taking the time to talk to me about your art and, and share a little bit about the work that you've got in progress too as well. It sounds very exciting, both of these works you're describing and people can obviously see the works that you have on display now. Maricela Rodriguez, thank you so much for for being with us. Thank you for having me. And Nelson Cardenas, thank you as well. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. 
And you can find a link to the gallery where Maricela Rodriguez and Nelson Cardenas' works are on display at our website, wmfe.org slash intersection. Up next, Confronting the Horror of Lynching, a conversation about the effort to acknowledge the victim of a lynching 130 years ago in Deland. We're back in a minute. This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. The life of a Volusia County resident will be honoured this weekend, 130 years after he was lynched. Lee Bailey was an Orange Grove worker who was arrested on suspicion of sexual assault. On September 25, 1891, Bailey was taken from the jail by a white mob who hanged him in downtown Deland before shooting him multiple times. The Volusia Remembers Coalition led the effort to uncover the facts of the lynching and commemorate the life of Lee Bailey, in partnership with the Equal Justice Initiative and Stetson University. Bailey is just one of thousands of lynching victims across the U.S. identified by EJI, and on Saturday morning a tree will be planted in his honour and soil collected from the site of the lynching. Well, I'm joined now by Volusia Remembers Coalition's co-chair, Dr. Grady Bellinger. He's a professor emeritus of English. Uh, Grady, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Also with us is Ceremonies Chair Daisy Grimes. Daisy, thank you as well. Thank you, thank you. On the weekend, you are going to be holding a ceremony to remember the life of Lee Bailey. So let's start with that. Who was Lee Bailey? Uh, Lee Bailey is, from uh, our information, was a young man who lived in Deland, had worked in the Orange Groves, supposedly from the data that we received, uh, and was allegedly arrested for raping a white woman. We don't have very much about his life in D-Land, other than the fact that he worked uh, He worked in the Orange Groves and he possibly had worked for this family that he allegedly raped uh, this young lady. But we do know that he was arrested. He was arrested. He was in the D-Land jail and later over 100 uh, residents of D-Land came and uh, took him out of the jail, overpowered the sheriff officer, police officer there, and took Mr. Bailey, and they hung him. Not only did they hang him, they shot him several times. So he never had an opportunity to officially and legally be charged with a crime because the Residents of the land did not wait. And interesting in that the papers that the articles that we read, and Grady can certainly verify this, that um, most of the people thought it was okay. They thought that it was the right thing to do. I wonder what it's like, the work that you've been doing, reading back through some of this, these historical artifacts and, and reflecting on the way these events were reported on and how the history has been buried up until now. Yeah, the history has been, uh, as the old folks used to say in greatest term, we say it, uh, we kind of swept it under the rug because it's so horrible. We don't want to acknowledge that these things happen, but they did happen. Uh, my concern is that uh, we have to tell the story and work to not let these things happen again. Because if we look at the climate in this country today, if we don't do something, we're headed back in that direction. There is more uh, divisiveness now than it was in the early 60s or 50s in my life to earlier 
lifetime and we were under segregated rules. But there's more divisiveness now than there were at that time. Reading it is a horrible part of our history, but it is a part of our history. And we must talk about it. We must reconcile it so we can heal. And that's the one area of uh, Volusia Members VRC that I do like because we are a very diverse group and we do talk about these things and we are able to share our feelings. And it's not to say that anyone on VCR, anyone in this country today, we can't blame you for what happened, you know, in 1800 or 1900s or anything. We can't blame you for that happening, but what we can blame you when you're not a part of trying to reconcile it and acknowledging that it did happen. And that has been one of the biggest challenges with America, not wanting to acknowledge that it happened. That's one of the problems we're having with critical race theory. There's a certain group of our segment of our country who's fighting critical race theory when they cannot say that these things did not happen. But they don't. we don't want to face it. We don't want to say it. But that's the only way to heal. And that's all we're saying is that let's acknowledge that this did happen. It was wrong. Uh, and let's move on and let's heal. Grady, talk a little bit, if you could, about the work of the committee to to kind of establish the facts of this case and then the process of acknowledging it now and, and how the ceremony fits into that. Yeah, that's been a fascinating part of the work and it's really brought us all together because uh, to a certain extent, we've all become researchers. Some of us have academic training and we know how to go into old newspapers to look at things. And some of us like uh, Daisy, we like to call her our detective because she just knows how to find things in the local community. With our first soil remembrance ceremony, we were honoring Lee Snell, a World War I uh, veteran taxi driver in Daytona Beach who, who was murdered on the side of the old DeLand Highway in 1939 in a, uh, a racial lynching. And Daisy was determined to find Mr. Snell's tombstone. She felt certain that it was somewhere in uh, Daytona. And indeed, she tracked it down in the historic uh, African-American cemetery. And we were able to acknowledge that uh, military tombstone at that site at, on Memorial Day. So to get back to the research part of things, we started to work with our partners at EJI. They sent us a narrative that they developed. We sent them a little bit more information that Sidney Johnston, a uh, historian on our committee, uh, had put together, including maps of where this took place in downtown DeLand in 1891. But at the end of the day, we, we just don't have a lot of information about this man other than what we read in these newspapers, which you've already noted, Matthew, are written by white reporters for white readers. And it's not subtle at all. It uh, assumes white supremacy. It, it assumes keeping black citizens in their place. And it assumes that it's appropriate to dehumanize people as uh, Lee Bailey is dehumanized in, in those articles. The fact that, that Lee Bailey's story is incomplete now and, and may remain incomplete is, is part of the story. And just for our listeners, EJI that you're referring to, that's the Equal Justice Initiative. 
Daisy, I wanted to just come back to the notion of soil collection. So there's a format for these remembrance ceremonies. Just just talk to me about the importance of the soil collection, how that how that works. We are happy, as Grady mentioned, that our historians have done a lot of research and we're actually going to that location. Not exactly the site where the actual tree was, but it is in that general area not too far from where the lynching actually happened. But we will actually go and dig the soil up in that area. And digging that soil up is a remembrance that something happened here that was not right. There was blood shed at this location. So we will dig that soil up and we will put it in jars. Those jars have the names of the victims on it. We will put that soil in those two jars. One jar will go back to EJI, to the Lynching Museum, and the other will stay here in Volusia County, and they will rotate. And when we complete this project, we will have four jars with the names of each Lynching victim. The jars will be on display for the public at Bethune-Cookman University, at the African-American Museum, Indy land and then a facility in Daytona. And we possibly have other facilities that we put them in. It will be a rotating visual view for the community for about a year. Then they will be permanently put placed in the African-American Museum, Indy land. Now for our ceremony, once we dig this soil up, we will walk in a solemn walk to the African-American Amphitheater in Deland, which is directly across from the African-American Museum. Also in that walk, we will have signs with the names of other victims who have been wrongly, unjustly killed by police officers or by other individuals. We will also have a sign that notes the massacre in Oklahoma, the Tuscaloosa, Oklahoma. We will have a sign that recognizes the Roadwood Massacre. And we will have 24 names on these signs so people can remember these victims who were unjustly killed. At the ceremony, these names will be called out. Then we will have the actual libation ceremony. And libation is a ritual that is done in from African tradition where we recognize our ancestors and all of that. And here we will be recognizing the life of Mr. Lee Bailey. We will plant a tree in honor of that life. We will put the saw from Lee's snail, and we will also put the saw from Mr. Bailey in the bottom of that tree. And the other victims, when we have those ceremonies, we will come back to that tree and add their saw to it and pour water and water is life. So the entire ceremony is to... Honor the life of Mr. Bailey, though we have very little information on him. We know he lived. We know he was a human. We know he was somebody's son. More than likely was somebody's sister, or, I mean somebody's brother. But he, we know he lived and he died. And this did not have to happen. He should have had his day in court. That is what our Constitution says. On our first ceremony with Mr. Lee Snell, we had the chief judge from Circuit 7 here, 
who acknowledged and said that the system denied Mr. Snell his right. We also had the Volusia County Sheriff Chickwood who said the same thing, that he was supposed to have been in the safety of the law enforcement and that failed him because he was taken from them. On this event, the DLAM Police Department, from my understanding, would like to put a reef at that site to acknowledge. And I think that is so awesome there, I really do, because I sent a lot from our police department to say, uh, this was wrong, this should not have happened. And we want to be publicly say that uh, we are sorry that this happened to this young man. And to say for, in the media, over a hundred people came out, a hundred citizens who probably had gone to church, was going to church that Sunday, and they take this man and they hang him on a tree and then they shoot him. To hang him was bad. But after he was hung, you still had to riddle his body with bullets. How hateful can you be? If you're just joining me, my guests are Daisy Grimes and Grady Ballinger. They are with the Volusia Remembers Coalition. We're talking about the remembrance ceremony for Lee Bailey, who was a lynching victim uh, who was killed in 1891 in DeLand. Grady, I wonder about the the scope of the work of the committee because Daisy mentioned four people who will be remembered in the course of this committee's work, but are there others, do you think? Like, Is it kind of an open-ended question as to how many victims you need to tell the stories of, or do you have a good idea that these are the people that you are going to be remembering in this way? When we plant the tree, we will actually uh, ultimately put a marker there to say that it honors all the known and unknown uh, victims of racial lynching, because the uh, truth is that we know about four. We've got good documentation on four lynching events in Volusia County. We have other incomplete reports of lynching events, but EJI is very careful to uh, focus on documented events. They don't want anybody coming back and saying, well, you're making all this up, that this never happened, and that sort of thing. So these are documented lynchings, and in fact, uh, Daisy may have to help me on the exact numbers, but it was over 4,000 acknowledged in their first report. And since that time, they have found uh, another 2,000 lynching victims. So that's a longer answer to your question. We, we know about four that we're going to remember and learn from remembering. We're committed to the kind of honest dialogue that will help us to improve the the, the uh, current community in Volusia County. But we're open to other discoveries if they should come forward to us. And we acknowledge that these <coughs> events were meant as spectacle events. This one in mm-hmm. particular, racial terror events to terrorize the whole Black community. And so we have to ask how many people weren't lynched, but left Volusia County, left Florida, were lost to us uh, because of the the fear that this kind of extrajudicial violence uh, could be done to them at, at any moment. Daisy, why is this work important to you? Oh, wow, that's a tough one. It's important to me because I truly believe in this country we have more good people than we have bad people. And I think that when we look back at our history, uh, though we have 
A lot of white people did a lot of mean things. We had a lot of white people who joined in and said, this is not right. And when we work together, when we come together as people and work together, we can solve a lot of the problems in this country. But when we don't say anything, the bad guys win. So I, I want to be involved. And I think uh, organizations like this are important because young people, young children need to see that they're more, they're more good people than they are bad people. And that uh, the good people, when we come together, we'll win. America is a great country. With all of our faults and all the things that we've done that have been hateful and mean, we're still a good country. We wouldn't be where we are today if people of goodwill from the other side did not come together and say this is wrong. So we have to keep the struggle going. We have to keep the fight on. Well, I want to thank you both. I've been speaking with Volusia Remembers Coalition's Ceremonies Chair, Daisy Grimes. Daisy, thanks so much for sharing some of the story about uh, Lee Bailey. Thank you for inviting us. And we've also been speaking with the co-chair of the coalition, Grady Ballinger. He's a professor emeritus of English at Stetson University. Grady, thank you so much as well. Yes, thank you so much, Matthew. And for more about Saturday's ceremony to remember the life of Lee Bailey, go to our website, wmfe.org slash intersection. Up next, what is Orlando's artistic identity and how do you get more people to pay attention to Orlando artists? One way to do it is put it on a billboard. We'll have that conversation after the break. This is Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. What is Orlando's artistic identity and how do you get more people to pay attention to Orlando artists? These are questions that curator Patrick Green has been pondering and one solution he's come up with to get art in front of more people is to put it on billboards. Green is taking inspiration from a similar project in LA, teaming up with the Downtown Arts District and Clear Channel for a billboard show in Central Florida that will debut in January. Green selected some of the artists and he's calling for submissions too. I met with him and painter Peterson Guerrier at Guerrier's downtown Orlando Gallery to talk more about the project. Green began the conversation. Orlando's not really known maybe to the rest of the world for art, you know, so, and I kind of feel like people like Peterson and other people, I was like the world, kind of people driving through I-4 need to see this too, but also the local people need to kind of see what's going on around here. So I just thought I want to focus on the local artists, you know, maybe someday we'll have some people from other places, but I'd rather right now just focus on the um, local people. Right. Peterson, tell me about your work. Like, Give us a visual <laughs> description of, of what you do and, and uh, somebody who's, who's new to the stuff you do, what, what is it? Well, I do a lot of uh, portraitures. I went to school for, for fine art and, um, and as well as worked in the, I guess, in the art industry for an uh, art consulting firm for some years now. So my work is a cross between contemporary classical and I mean some will say almost graffiti-esque because I, I do a mixture of everything mixed media mm-hmm. so right now my body of work is mostly charcoal with um, resin and as well as spray paint so patterns and the, the beautiful thing about my work as well is, uh, is that most of the people or I guess you could say characters that I portrayed in my work are people that I actually know mm-hmm. that I photographed 
So there's a sense of connection between the work and, and, and my community as well. Did you grow up in Orlando? No, I did not. I grew up in Miami. Okay. Grew up in Miami, moved to Orlando about 16 years ago. And ever since then, I've been part of the art community in Orlando. Was it always your dream to be a, an artist full-time? Yeah, since I was a kid. Never saw myself being anything else but what I'm doing right now. Mm-hmm. I remember actually after I graduated high school, my mom actually wanted me to go into the medical field. Spent my first semester at FIU, then went to Detroit where I went to, see, I went to school in CCS. So left and I was like, I love art. I fell in love with it at a very young age. Didn't want any, anything else. So here we are. Was that a difficult road to, to tread? I mean, it sounds like there was a bit of family pressure to, to go into a different profession. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, uh, like every other profession, there's always hardship. But I also think that if you love something, you, you, you find a way to make it work no matter what. And the people that surround you, like my family, it took them some years for them to actually come around to, to be like, oh, you're an artist. So they actually came to one of my shows. I think I told you this. I did a show at Grand Bohemian uh, about five years ago. They all came, and when they, my, my whole entire family came, and when they came, and like, as I was bringing the pieces into the gallery, people was buying them. They were, so when, by the time they walked in, I had probably half of the paintings there already sold. So when, again, my whole entire family came in and walked in, it was like, oh, so you are an artist. You're not starving. I'm like, nah. But at the same time, it's also one of those things that you have to sacrifice certain things. For me, it was, I love creating, and although... I didn't have the, the gallery space or the, the studio space that I wanted. I had my apartment. I worked random jobs. When, when I moved there, I worked at the courthouse for a couple of years, but that never stopped me from creating. So I would go to work, come home, create, and then you know sacrifice sleep or relationship because this is the one thing that I always saw myself doing. So Pat, Peterson is one of the artists that you've pre-selected and you are... You are asking for, for others to submit entries, but tell me about how you came across Peterson's work. Like, how, how did you get to know the, his work? I don't remember when I first saw your stuff, but I, I mean, like, when being in the gallery at Avalon Island, I, we just, like, we crossed paths a lot. Yeah. But I knew of you before that, but I don't know. Yeah. I mean, Peterson's, Peterson's a legend. I don't, you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. No, but I mean, like, he is pretty well known around here. And I, I picked the 11 pre-picks. I picked, like, Peterson is, like, one of... Maybe I hate to say one of the more obvious choices that people would, but then there was a couple under the radar type people that I I picked too because I didn't want to, and I didn't pick like every obvious choice in Orlando either. No, so, no, you know, no. like I kind of like a, a few people were like, oh, what about so and so? And I said, yeah, but I I felt like Peterson's work is would also be re- translate really well to a billboard, you know, because right. you do that work that actually looks like it looks like it'd be great. And the billboards, by the way, there's going to be. 30 12 by 25 foot paper boards then there's five billboards that are digital that are going to be rotating the 30 artists so um we'll have something like on the website about locations for the paper boards but we don't know exactly where the boards are going to be right now because it it's a kind of up to what clear channel what's going on with them like at the time how much advertising that kind of thing like that too say if some of them are along i4 like i4 is legendary in orlando for being a place of frustration and, and rage <laughs> and, but if you're giving people something beautiful to look at along the way hopefully it's not too beautiful they're going to get distracted from <laughs> right. driving but that's that's a good thing right you're sort of reclaiming a space that's commercial and the corridor project idea comes from um i mean like temporary public art kind of but i, I want to make the um, art more a little more democratic and all and 
like when I had the gallery, people would come in and tell me they were intimidated by the gallery. Right. And it never, it never really hit me, but I thought, man, there's people that shouldn't be intimidated. This shouldn't right. be intimidating. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of what I want to do. What I've done with this space yeah. is that um, I've made it in a way that I've had some people walk by. It was like, oh, this is a, a gallery space. This is a studio space. Yeah. But at the same time, everybody that walks by is welcome to come in. They are welcome to come in. And they, I've had random people just sit there. We have conversations. It was like, hey. This is the space for this. Yeah. Art should bring people together, no matter what you're into and yeah. or whatnot. This this is this is a welcoming space because we could design it where we could intimidate yeah. people. Yeah. But yeah. why? 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 Why shut people out when when they come in? It was like you know what I've done. I've, I used to do art when I was young, uh, when I was younger, but now I don't do it anymore. Why not? Yeah, yeah. Come here, sit. Here's some paint. Here's some paper. Yeah, yeah. I don't get get messy. But I mean that that that's what we want to think. Our goal is to really like just that whole stigma of like a, a studio a gallery space should be intimidating. It's like no, it's not. Just it should yeah, always I want be welcome. People to be participate because like right. I really, I really feel like yeah, like you said, like there's people like I did art. There's also people that are super creative that probably are not doing anything in their life that shows that. Right. But they're capable, or they don't have time, or something like this. But I'd like to get you know, I'd sort of like to find out some of those who those some of those people are too. Right. You know. We did that trip, the transit interpretation project with the corridor project, uh, David Moran and I, and we uh, would give people a bus pass, and then like a month they had to, to produce something like a drawing or whatever. And I was trying to get people who might just ride the bus who don't even know like I had a gallery, you know. Right. But it was kind of harder to get some of those people too because they're a little bit shy about it sometimes. And I, people start just seeing this stuff. Like you might get more visitors than you want. Peterson. That's why I say it's by chance of appointment. <laughs> but uh, no, nah, I mean, I think it's also, it's one of those beautiful things that's going to happen that Orlando has just the amount of incredible talents that's here that's not being, that's recognized. I think this is going to give them an opportunity for just, again, uh, for I4 that people could actually see the talent that we have here. Because mm-hmm. um, uh, one of the things that I really dislike when people say if they come to any of the shows, it's like, this feels like Miami. This feels like New York or LA. It's like, no, this is Orlando. This is what, this, this is what we're doing here. We're not trying to be like anybody else, but we just want to show that we have all the talents that we have and kind of break the, dare I say that word, that segregation that happens within the art world. Cause some, the winter park crowd doesn't come downtown, you know? So there's all these different groups that, that they, they don't travel around. So it's like, okay, well we need to find a way to get everybody to come around to art and celebrate the arts because you wouldn't have Miami art Basel. You wouldn't have the, if people wouldn't come yeah. to just celebrate the art. So there's just, I mean, that's, I think that's, the, that's still gonna be the beautiful thing about the, the well, billboard. Like when I had the gallery right like in the same building we're at right now from 2013, 2018, people would be like, Somebody said something to me one time. Somebody was trying to thinking about opening a gallery down the street, and they go, "Oh, it's competition." I said, "I hope twenty galleries open on this right. street, you know, because everybody like will come down here for and check it all out." I said, "We're not showing the same things, mm-hmm. you know. Like I might show something Peterson had, but he's not. Gonna, it's not going to just be a, right. a Peterson gallery." It sounds like there's two things happening here. One, you really want to celebrate what you're doing, but you also it also sounds like what you're trying to do with this project, especially too, is like help reinforce Orlando's artistic identity yeah because um again I've with with we also do a lot of commercial work in here so I, I get to me and my um, business partner we get to travel around we get to see art and we get to pre, we appreciate it because again same thing with Chris my partner he's he's in love with art as well so he's probably one of the only person that I've met that could actually 
dissect a piece of art and, and tell you what came first. And I'm like, dude, how did you see this? But it's one of those things that, again, when we go outside and we see all those beautiful art pieces, even going down the St. Pete, the mural projects, we want to, again, we, we would like to bring those down here. And I think that's, again, with the billboard, that's, that's kind of a, a starting point to, to show that, hey, this could be on the side of the building and appreciated versus just all the random graffiti that we're seeing around. But like Pat mentioned earlier, having my studio downtown, it, I didn't open it in a way to be like, oh, well, I want to be the big dog around town. It was like, okay, well, I'm hoping that more artists will see it and the building owners will be like, hey, this is a cool space. How can we incorporate this into our space and then give it to another artist? So that's one of the major things for me here. Again, at any given time, I could be outside cutting wood or cutting metal or any random things could happen. And I'm surprised that the city has never said anything, but... At the same time, is I just put myself out there. But the, but the one thing that I've also noticed is that half of the people that works downtown that walks past my studio, they love they love to see us working on random project. So Peterson, your works as uh, Pat was saying, they're kind of big and bold and colorful. For the piece that we're going to see on one of these billboards, are you thinking of it as like a scaled up version of of a painting on this size, or do you need to think? bigger to create something like that um no i mean this the size that i have right now which is um everything that's on the wall here are about 36 48 so that will translate very um fairly well on the billboard that scale mm-hmm. or i mean I, I like to paint big so therefore if you give me a reason to go bigger I'm, i'll always take it you know mm-hmm. so but i'm still still molding over the idea of what i'm gonna do because um i'm one of those artists i don't like to sketch my work because i like my work to have an organic feel to it so i go in the studio or come here um, and just start working. So I have, I don't know what's going to happen yet. It might come in the day before submission is due. <laughs> the, the day of bring, bring the painting to, to pack the photograph and it's still wet. I do better at the very, very end because I don't, I don't overanalyze the work. I just let it, let it happen. Like I said, I, I like to have an organic feel to my work. So if I pre-think it or sketch it, I feel like that whole... That it's it's gone. The the originality of the idea is gone. So we'll see. On that theme of not overthinking things or sort of your creative process as you go through planning out what you might do for this, are you thinking, okay, this is a different audience or more people are gonna see this, so therefore it's an opportunity to you know, make a statement or, or say something different or how are you approaching that aspect of it? Well, I, I haven't even thought about that <laughs> to be honest. Because I uh I think that the, the work that I do, I don't think it makes anybody feel any particular way. So, I mean, it makes you, 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 you feel something about it. You get something from the work, but I don't think it ever shone anybody from, from looking at appreciating the work. Peterson's work, I think it works well. It's accessible, but it goes deeper too, you right. know? So I think that's what I like about it because it's got like different levels, but, but it's like not something where people are like, I don't even know what that is or whatever, right. you know? Like. The work that I create is, um, it's in a way that, again, anybody can appreciate even though if you're not into art or you, you have no knowledge of art it's something that i create something that has meaning behind it however it's it's pretty to the eyes you know it's palatable where you can digest it and it's not again it's not gonna push you away from not from not appreciating what's in front of you so subject matter wise probably gonna have five different subjects in there who knows but it's still gonna be something that again when you drive by on the I don't think I've ever seen my work that big before, so that's going to be pretty interesting to see. <laughs> so what are you looking for? Because you still have some entries that you're calling for, right? So what's the deadline? What, what do people need to know? It's October 1st is the deadline, and uh, 
I think October 25th is when I make the announcement. I'm just looking for, if you think your work looks good on a billboard, submit it. You know, and I think that we don't ask for as much of like a resume bio kind of thing as most people. We're, we're kind of being intentionally loose about this because I don't want it to be kind of like, well, you didn't get your MFA, you know, and I, because I, I'd like to get some people that maybe I don't even know who the hell they are, you know, I think that'd be kind of fun too. Mm-hmm. So I'm not looking, I'm not looking for anything in particular, but I just want something that goes, wow, that would be really cool on a billboard. You know? Thinking about this as a show and trying to democratize the process and the art, as you were saying earlier, you have a captive audience, right? I mean, people can choose to go to a gallery or not, but if you're in a car, if you're driving past one of these billboards, you're going to see it. You know, whether you pay attention to it or not is kind of up to you, but you're able to put art in people's faces. So right. <laughs> how does that make you feel as a curator? Uh, I like it because I think that, you know, billboards can be like, there could be too many of them and everything, but it's really kind of cool to, like, because I want art to be everywhere. And it's like, like say Miami, uh, Wynwood Walls or something like this. And I feel like sometimes the process of getting uh, murals or public art is actually is such a bureaucratic process that my hope is that we can just figure out how to kind of make things a lot easier because honestly, I think it'll actually probably help our economy too. If there's like art everywhere, if there's just like people are coming down here to see, like Peterson talks about Miami, Orlando has plenty of it going on too. And I, I, when I had the gallery, I really found that out too, you know, because people, I found out about people that I had no idea were around here. So it's actually pretty brilliant. I just thought about it to to have the art in the billboard because, especially in the time that we are in right now, not a lot of people are going into galleries. Not a lot of people are seeing yeah, the that's art. That's kind of what I was so, doing it because I was also kind of feeling like, what can I do that's like COVID friendly right. too? You know, like. But you're also posing the question that does artists really need galleries to represent them? Because what you're doing right now, if as an artist, if I have the funding. And if I could go and I could get a billboard space and promote myself, do I need a gallery to really like sell my work? I kind of think all of it's good, you know. Right. Like no, I just it's, feel like it's, it's all like a, like. But I also used to tell people, um, like I said, if you're if you're creative, you could figure out a way to get your stuff out there. Right. It's part of being creative is not you know just depending on like the gallery to show your stuff, but just do something. Well, Pat Green and Peterson Garriott, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Matthew Petty. It was awesome. And for more on the Corridor Project Billboard exhibition and to see some of Peterson Garrier's work, go to wmfe.org slash intersection. Support for Intersection comes from Advent Health and from our listeners. Editorial guidance from Latoya Dennis. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matthew Petty. Thanks for listening.